always it's said, like, blood moon, let's have a look. No way, I mean, I've seen Day of the Trippets. Have you seen me dice bag? <laughs> Files. Hello, my name is Dirk the Dice, and this is the Grognard Files podcast, where we talk bobbins about tabletop RPGs from back in the day and today. I'm coming alive from my den here in the heart of the northwest of England. I'm completely surrounded by my stuff. Here on my right is my great library of RPGs and my Grognard Files, while here on my left is my ridiculous homemade shrine to the actor Caroline Monroe. I'll just give it a tap. Ah yes, the eternal champion has appeared as Barbara, the daughter of Telly Savalas in the 1988 slasher film Faceless, where she can be identified by a distinctive mole. After all the excitement of the fifth anniversary episode, we're back to our usual shtick. But before we go into that, we've had our first review for a while. I'm going to read it as a way of introduction to the Grog Pod if you haven't listened before. My Covid Pod of Choice. I've been listening to your whole back catalogue of groggy nerdery while doing copious amounts of DIY. Very relaxing due to your dulcet tones. And so soporific, it's a wonder that I get anything done. I have fond memories of playing Woofrup RPG. This prompted me to listen to the whole thing from start to finish. Great guests and excellent segments. Thank you, Mungo. If you enjoy the Grog Pod, then please like, subscribe or review to help others find us. This episode is all about Aftermath! Exclamation mark. The role-playing game designed by the creators of Bushido, Paul Hume and Robert Charette, and published by Fantasy Games Unlimited in 1981. Regular listeners will be aware that we don't only focus on games that we used to play, but also those games that we wanted to play, but for whatever reason were unable. Like all of the FGU games, I coveted Aftermath, and made scenarios in my head in the hope that one day I'd be able to get it as a present, or save up enough money to buy it. There were other demands on my pocket money. A burgeoning record collection, collecting doorstop fantasy novels and cassettes with games on for my ZX Spectrum. I don't know how I managed to resist. I was completely obsessed by Cold War tension, nuclear proliferation and post-apocalyptic futures. White Dwarf was effusive in its review. The rules of this game defy description. I can't honestly think of anything I want to know that isn't given at least a couple of pages in one or other of the books. The realism is unparalleled. The reviewer, Andy Slack, goes on to say, I found it a depressing game. You can actually see yourself crouching in the radiation-blasted rubble of Stoke-on-Trent, or whatever, fighting another survivor to the death over a can of rotten dog food, 20 years old. 10 out of 10. Sounds great, doesn't it? When I started to get back into the hobby in earnest, back in 2014, after the long, deep freeze, 
Aftermath was one of the first games that I bought, as I was unable to get it the first time round. Finally, I had it in my hands. It's still available as a print-on-demand product. This was a little Christmas treat for myself. I picked it up and put it down. I picked it up again and put it down again. I picked it up and had a laugh at the detailed statistics for a bicycle and then I put it down again. And then I picked it up and and so on and so on. This year I was determined to run it because if you buy it, you've got to play it, right? The opportunity came in the form of Grimcon, a convention organised by GoPlay Manchester featuring role-playing games that linger in the darkness of the perilous and horrific. I thought it'd be a good idea to offer an aftermath game set in the fictional world represented in the television film Threads. For those who don't know the TV movie Threads, I urge you to seek it out, but with a disclaimer, it's not for the faint-hearted. Broadcast by the BBC on the 24th of September 1984, 36 years to the day that this podcast is published, it had a tremendous impact on our young minds and on the attitudes of the British public towards nuclear policy. Directed by Mick Jackson and written by Barry Hines, it remains every bit as powerful today as it did back then. I had the idea of setting the scenario in the bunker beneath Sheffield Town Hall, the play characters as emergency planning officers trying to do their best in a desperate situation, balancing their own personal survival with their civic duty. It took hours to generate the characters. I was aided by online resources available from the FGU site. The link is in the show notes. I spent ages trying to work out the rules. When I was rocking in a corner after several hours, Mrs. The Dice said, Are you okay? Do you need a doctor? She was right. I did. I called on grogsquadder.cowie to help me fathom the rules and help me understand the context in which they were written. He joins me in the room of role-playing rambling for Doc Cowie Rules. And there's another doctor in the house. Dr. RPG Griff gives a splendid first, last and everything. I invited Ed from his shed and Judge Blythe to join me in the groggle box to get nostalgic about the good old days during the Cold War and to watch threads together. I'll be back at the end, all being well. Until then, ramblers, let's get rambling. Doc Gary, rules! Welcome to the room of role-playing rambling. I've got Doc Cowie with me. He's got a leather case, a mirror strapped to his head, and I hope that stethoscope is warmed up. Welcome, Doc Cowie. Good evening, Dirk. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. I've not got Judge Blythe with me. I thought if I had a doctor and a judge in the same room, it'd be like Agatha Christie, and I'd probably be the victim. <laughs> it's a genuine shame. I think we really could have done with someone like Blythe to perhaps explain some of these rules to us in detail, but I don't want to get ahead. I have said uh, in the introduction that I was struggling so much with the, these rules that my wife said, do you need a doctor? And uh, that's why I've called you in. And we normally refer to you as Dr. Con because normally you're seen schlepping around the country in your kilt with a big bag, going across the world to different conventions. And normally you'd be at Gen Con, wouldn't you, in August. 
So what was it like this year? Heartbreaking this year. This year, I finally thought I'd get organised and I put together a proper spreadsheet. I had a proper spreadsheet with dates to make sure I'd taken time off. I'd got, you know, bookings. I'd booked accommodation. I'd booked travel. Um, and just throughout the year, I've just been redlining everything. And now my spreadsheet's got a little line on it saying, have you got your money back? Um, and obviously, tonight, we were supposed to be in Leamington Spa at Owlbear and Wizard Staff. And I got a phone call from the uh, from the woman at the um, uh, bed and breakfast saying, "What time will you be arriving?" And I thought, "Ugh, I didn't. I, I forgot to cancel it." Have you engaged in any of the online conventions? Oh well, I mean, uh, that has been the amazing thing, though, hasn't it? I think the amount of gaming that certainly I've been doing over the last six months has been huge. I've been gaming at least two nights at least two nights a week often three sometimes four four is definitely too many and meeting people from all over the world so in fact in some ways i've been talking to just as many gamers as you would do if you're going to cons it's just it's not face to face it's it's not quite the same and did you do the gen con con because i know that they had some games running didn't they did oh yes i did um no no I, uh, I i did some online stuff i did online my boys and because uh, i always take the boys to gen con because they're uh, you know they've got strong backs and they're good at carrying stuff um <laughs> uh, and in exchange uh, i take them to gen con and so we did our traditional uh, call of cthulhu game on the sunday you know we all played together um uh, with a slightly baffled keeper you know having three rather similar um british blokes suddenly turn up and uh start role-playing at each other i think it's got to be a bit disconcerting but no that was lovely it was it was great to get together with them and do that i invited you here today because you share my enthusiasm for taking these old games and trying to revive them trying to find the essence of them and find the fun in them that's right, isn't it? Yeah, that is, of course, that's absolutely right. I mean, and normally it's not too difficult. Um, normally it's an easy task. You've just, you know, you've got to open up the, the book and you look at it and you can just feel the love. Sometimes, you know, naivety, sometimes wrongheadedness, sometimes, you know, there's lots of ways things could be wrong in the 1970s and 1980s. But in general, normally it's pretty easy to look at them and, and love the game. There are exceptions. I, I also invited you because you have experience of playing the game under discussion, Aftermath. Um, so you played it back in the day, which we never did. Um, so it'd be good to reflect on those experiences. What was it like and how did it fit into uh, your normal repertoire of games? Well, I, I played at Edinburgh University when I was mostly playing uh, Advanced Squad Leader. I don't know whether you're familiar with the concept. I don't know that one, no. No, Advanced Squad Leader is a marvellous war game where they have individual rules for, I don't know, bicycle troops, gliders, fortified cellars. It's just an extraordinary level of detail. The um, uh, uh, And it wasn't desperately surprising that my mate Gary, who I played ASL with, said, uh, should we try Should we try this aftermath thing? And uh, we looked at it and we thought, yeah, that's the sort of thing that proper players, you know, would, would get into. We'll have a go at that. Um, so we spent about, uh, 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 to be completely honest, I spent about three days putting characters together. Um, I made two just in case. Um, uh, when we first came to play, 
a couple of my fellow players had not been they turned up sort of cheerily saying oh um, i'll just put them together i've i've worked out the name um <laughs> but you will be aware that uh, I, I think we weren't planning on a session zero but we had a session zero yeah. then um we you know we had it all going uh, i had brad hancock brad hancock was my favorite um and he's the one i started with and, and i will explain why you know uh, some of the reasons why he was my favorite crop up in the way the game works um but i mean all you really need to know was that he was mini maxed um and awesome uh he had nunchuck skill you would not believe he was in his mid 50s which and again we may get round to why being in your mid 50s is ideal in this game um he had armor he had oh he was he had he was fantastic um and uh we Yes, so we set off and uh, we were traveling. Yeah, we were traveling towards a ruined city and we came to a bridge and uh, we were all having quite a good time, sort of arguing. And, uh, you know, we weren't very role play, but we were role playing. And this guy steps out of the bridge and he's got a motorcycle jacket on and he goes, uh, It's going to cost you. To... Oh, sadly, we didn't have anyone who could do an American accent. Um, but it, it's going to cost you to get across this bridge. And uh, we go, yeah, this is, you know, uh, now let's see how these combat rules work. And interestingly, how these combat rules work is you spend about three quarters of an hour reading the rules, trying to work out how the combat rules work. Um, you get your nunchucks out, you wave them, you smash this guy in the leg, and then you get shot in the neck um by a sniper and that was the end of end of brad hancock and it was oh. after like an hour and a half's play it was i don't know i think that probably should have taught me some sort of deep lesson i think it just made me really cross because i had to play this other other character that wasn't as good um yeah we we wandered around the wandering around was good it was mm. interesting um you know it was you know, the sheer complexity of what's happening you know made you really think and uh, no, we really enjoyed the wandering around. It's just we kept getting into combat. And <sighs> again, I, no spoilers, um, but let's say that the combat, even for people who like Advanced Squad Leader, even with people who are very happy to spend you know, six days on a single scenario um, and neglecting their medical studies, even for those people, um, the combat in Aftermath possibly took longer than the outcome warranted but even at the time because normally we have this thing that we have um, simplicity rules and um you know when you look back on these old systems people you know look back on them and say oh they were so complex and so involved and you needed system mastery to get the value out of them but even at the time aftermath was mocked for its complexity wasn't it it, it was I, i've got this um, advert from Dragon Lords magazine where it said aftermath comes after algebra. But uh, may I remind you, 10 out of 10 white dwarf. Of course, yeah, really? yeah, yeah. And then that's that's what appealed to me about it, that. And also the, fa the fact that it was um, aftermath and I was obsessed with nuclear war, but we'll go on to that later. But it had that reputation and part of its appeal was that complexity because it felt like if you could master this, you could master anything. I think this was part of the the late 70s, early 80s obsession with simulation. 
there was this belief that if you could model the world down to you know to really reflect what happens if you could really get a, an accurate model of the world then you didn't you know you didn't need a, a games master who was making unfair decisions and you know killing your third level cleric um with rock grubs you know it, it it all you know it worked you know you followed you made a decision based on real life thoughts and what would work in real life really works in that game as well and you work your way through and it, it feels satisfying i mean if you look at computer games now um if you've got a computer game where it, you know, your actions don't really make sense or it's a bit arbitrary or you don't understand what happens, it's sometimes frustrating. Whereas um, computer games have the clout to be able to model the world much more accurately. And that's an attractive thing. So I think in the, certainly in the late 70s, 80s, it was all about being more realistic. It was, you know, that's why we played RuneQuest because it's obviously more you know realistic than Dungeons and Dragons. Um, and why would you play an unrealistic game? Yeah, yeah, we made that point actually um, previously when we were looking at Merp. That actually it's an analog attempt to emulate the algorithms that are behind computer games. In fantasy games, unlimited in general. So people mentioned Bushido as well and Chivalry and Sorcery, and they have this reputation, don't they? It's you, the wargaming background, you know, yeah. it's, I mean, and wargaming was in the seventies was all about trying to be more realistic. I mean, you had, you had, and that again, ended up killing itself with the, with the monster games. I mean, I know this is the wargaming podcast, but you know, you had campaign for Northern, uh, for North Africa, which to my knowledge has never actually been played. It required not all the way through. It takes at least eight people uh, the level of modeling goes down to individual trucks. You know, you keep records for individual vehicles and how they are doing. Um, you know, famously, the Italians need more water because they eat pasta. So, you know, I mean, it's it's that level. And it's just this feeling of the complexity becomes uh, an end in itself. It's, um, it. I mean, honestly, you know, you are... If, if I had if I had two weeks off and seven other people who wanted to give it a go, I'd play campaign for North Africa. I'd be happy to give it a go, but it's clearly mad. Um, <laughs> so, so we could put a call out here if, the, if we can find uh, seven yeah. other people. Uh oh. <laughs> okay, so you know how this format works. What I'm going to ask you is to give me three highlights of the game and one epic fumble so let's uh, let's look at the highlights so what, what have you got for the for the highlights let's start with your first one predictably i decided to totally ignore what you said about the highlights of the game specifically and i would rather go with things that they were really good aims that they were trying to achieve that made me that made me love the game despite itself so uh, can i have three highlights of the game that sh could have been there remember i'm not the rules lawyer i'm the wavy davy and i wave that through well he's not here he's not here he exactly. can he, he can he can send me a rude tweet in fact i got into this whole thing quite i i was all ready to absolutely download on this um but honestly i think I really quite enjoyed, I don't know about you, you had mm. to actually run a game. Maybe that's what put you off. You had to actually engage and make it work. Whereas reading it, I actually quite enjoyed it. I think obviously the first thing I, I loved about it was its, its belief that it could create a world, that it could simulate everything. 
you know, I mean, that does have the problem that, you know, it, it, it is like a holodeck. And I, I know we keep going back to this, but it's how you make an, an analog holodeck. It's got a hundred non-weapon skills. You know, it can simulate anything. You can, you can definitely argue, are you likely to use pilot submersible as much as you are stealth? I don't know. But, you know, you can take pilot submersible if you wanted. Those 100 non-weapon skills actually take up fewer pages than the explosive rules, which you probably, I hope you didn't have a grenade in your game. If you did, it's, it's on you. The medical rules, the medical rules are really good. I mean, yeah. you know, obviously bias here, but you've got narrow spectrum versus broad spectrum antibiotics. You've got bubonic versus pneumonic plague. You've got rules for CPR. I love the rules for CPR. It, it, you know, it says how, because have you ever tried to give CPR if someone's wearing a breastplate? No, you haven't. You know, so it's here are rules for whether you can give CPR to people who are wearing armor, what armor you've got to take off. It's brilliant. You've got 50 different pistols, 50 rifles, 80. I mean, again, you can just list this and you can look at it and you can think, oh, when you get a rifle, it's just this amazing specific thing. I, I don't know how you found it in your own game, this sort of level of detail, but um, I just got absolutely sucked in. I loved the whole concept. Well, disappointingly, uh, there was a point in the game that I ran where you needed a plumbing skill, and plumbing is not covered. So <laughs> we had to improvise in that case. So, yeah, it's, well, it's a strange omission. But, I mean, it does have, you know, it has other things. It has, you know, re the scavenging rules are really good. It makes sense if you go to a, you know, an urban area, you know, when you hunt things, it, you know, it's interesting. You find interesting things that sort of make sense in the world. And, if you know, if you see a pharmacy and you hunt around at a pharmacy, you get the sort of things plus weird stuff. The computer rules, having said, the computer rules are balmy. I, <laughs> I genuinely couldn't understand the computer rules. But, hey, again, just like real life, you know, you've got the creatures. I mean, you've got hit locations for everything. You've got hit locations for sharks. I mean, yes. oh, love them. What, but what if they're fighting a shark? Well, we've got that for them. There we are. No one's going to be saying, that was a very unrealistic fight with that shark. I didn't know where I was sitting it. <laughs> now you do. Um, uh, but you've got the famous food rules. Different animals. If you want armor, you kill a rhino. If you want, if you want pure meat, you kill horses. If you want food value, you kill cockroaches. This is all medically very accurate i'd have to say they, uh, <laughs> um i really love that i love reading the game it made me feel all warm and happy inside you could have got away with saying when you were doing this at uh, university that you're actually contributing to your medical qualification i mean have you had to remove uh, the breastplate from uh, a patient it's very rarely a problem i mean uh, <laughs> normally uh, normally the people we are we are dealing with wait a minute let me consult the rule book um uh, they are they're normally wearing um i think it's probably going to count as non-metallic light cloth <laughs> and i think as we both will be able to point out there's no problem doing cpr on uh, light cloth on the on the, the the chestal regions yeah if that was one thing i learned don't do CPR on someone wearing plate armor. It didn't come up in the exams, disappointingly. The other thing we should point out about um, the way that this is pitched is it doesn't assume the nature of the catastrophe. So part of its versatility is that it could account for any disaster. And that brings us neatly on 
yes. to my second thing. I love the scope exactly as you say. They don't tell you what to do. They've created this this simulacrum of a world, and you get to decide what went wrong. Um, it's got aliens, you know, alien invasions. It's got Planet of the Apes rules. It's got the return of magic and dragons way before Shadow. Oh gosh, actually, you know, imagine playing Shadowrun with this. But it's got. <laughs> it, but I mean, it, it really does give you all sorts of choices. It gives you mass battle rules. It's got really sensible grown-up gm and player advice i mean you really got the idea that the people playing this were you know obviously really geeky they were sensible i mean my entire impression of this was these were a bunch of people who had been playing in a campaign for some time they all understood the underlying way it worked but they had to get it out of their heads and put it onto paper and i think that brings us on to some of the difficulties but i think i can really imagine uh you know uh that you know the way it is set up you sit down with a bunch of people i think it would be possible to have a good game of this uh no a good campaign i don't think a good one-off i would not play this as a one-off but i think putting together a campaign is again one day when i've got a few months spare and i can find six other people we'll go for that yeah yeah as a as a one-off um, it is difficult to demonstrate the game, um, partly because of the um, complexity, but also because when, when I uh, run the game, I set it in at one place. And really, to get the best out of this, you need to explore. You need to go out there and see different locations and discover what's happened and uh, interact with some of the uh, landscapes that you encounter after a disaster. And And, and, and I think it's brilliant for that. The idea of... Um, it being a simulation means that if you go from a wood to a you know a suburban area the game will tell you what you need to do at that point um uh, you know it's a classic game where you roll the dice for the game to tell you what happens you know it's you know narrative games you you know you say what happens really um or the gm says what happens but here You've both got the rules in front of you. You know how it works. Um, you roll it, and interesting things come out of it. So it's a, you know it's exa- people talk about sandbox campaigns and you know West March's campaigns and you know in the OSR, where the entire you don't have to prep for them because you've got the world there. Um, uh, the party go into it. They make decisions based on those decisions and rolling dice. Exciting things happen, and the story is created by what the dice tell you it's not this game has a big plot we will find the story i did use the npc reaction tables uh, as part of that and to create the drama and that was good because some of the um, npcs outside of the bunker that the adventure setting would have different reactions depending on that and uh, that made it made it interesting interesting though the number of times that indifference came up you know, that's my standard mode indifference. So I was able to role play that very well. But but again, that's you know, gosh, I'm scampering along. But I, I am really enthusiastic. But the you know, the other thing was my other thing I loved about it, making three, hmm. is the the way that you've got the wide scope of the world, you've got the detail around the characters, and the way that they've looked at this and say, how do you get them how do you get the players to engage with this world? How do you make them care about the world that's around them? How do you make it into a campaign where their actions have effects? And you, you the reputation rules are really good, actually. Mm-hmm. I mean they're they're, they're they're way too complicated, but they're quite, you know, they're 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 grown up and you know your actions have 
consequences. Um, and it becomes really important to have a group of people that you can be safe with. Um, again, partially because all the, you know, the way that XP works, the way that developing your character works is you need downtime, um, food and shelter, really. You don't need to go out on adventure. Mm -hmm. um, you know, all you got to do, I mean, it, it's really possible in this game to just sit down for, you know, I'm going to spend the next 20 years training in the following things. And yeah, you come out really good. But the whole point is, in order to have that time, in order to have the ability to study, you have to earn that. You have to earn the food. You have to earn the safety. You have to, you know, be able to, you know, carve out a safe niche. So the combination of the reputation and experience rules, I think, work beautifully to give you a reason to engage with the world. The, you know, the barter rules, again, <sighs> I mean, again, you can, you can comment about them, about the way it's done, but, you know, it's a sensible approach. It's not based on gold pieces. Um, uh, uh, and, it, it, it's another reason that makes you want to go out and explore and find things that you can barter. I, I, I love the way that the game itself gives a reason for the players to be going out doing stupid things and when they've, you know, and gives them a reason to come back and want a safe place to be in. And some of the innovations in there, there is in there um, the idea of extended tasks. So um, I think that's a really good thing that I've probably not seen in a, a game this early um where it says that some things will take an extended period of time uh, to do them and it works out a formula of this is the amount of time that you've got these this is the skill that you've got and then you've got to measure the effect by rolling your attribute and you can contribute to that so um we used it for digging out of rubble difficulty with it is the way that it's the way that it tell you how to do it can i read you it a task is a job involving a skill which cannot be resolved by a simple die roll on a detailed action time. That's a DAT. There's lots of three-letter acronyms in this as well, isn't there? So you have to uh, keep going with the glossary with this. A given task is rated for a task value, the number of task points required to complete it, and the task period at the end of which the character accumulates task points. At the end of the task period, the length in which is determined by the games master, a character will make a BCS roll for the skill involved. A successful roll will allow the character to roll the effect die for a specific attribute, usually deafness or wit. A critical success, a die roll of one, when the BCS is greater than one, raises the character's attribute group by one in that die. This die result is the base number of task points. that can, And so it goes on and on and on. Essentially, I'm feeling a little bit like you're reading that out at me in revenge for my extended Glorantha rant <laughs> in my first class and everything. But but yeah, it, but it's all like that. That is, you will know that is far from the most incomprehensible paragraph. And actually, once you've got your head around all the TLAs, honestly, I could I could get I could grok that. Um, yeah. uh, I don't know whether it's because I, I you know I understood it a very long time ago and uh, right, that never goes. Right. Am I right in thinking that at the heart of this, it's a roll low on a, a D20 mm -hmm. and the complexity comes in calculating what the, that target number is? Yes, absolutely. Um, uh, I mean, you, you're looking at your AST and your CST, um, uh, you know, saving throws as well. You use them quite a lot, you know, based on your stats. So your average saving throw and your critical saving throw. Um, it is super annoying that you do end up rolling one number which is used to cal calculate another number which is used to calculate another number um and you think why don't we just start with 
those numbers? Why do we go from one to another? They, if you look at the character sheet, you've got, I mean, just as an example, we're sneaking into my things that make me mildly, uh, you know, uh, well, disconcerted now. Well, well let's but get sneaking into it. Let's get sneaking the, into the, it. Um, the obvious, I mean, the, you know, the armoured rhino in the room is the complexity of this and how it is actually put down and your ability to transfer the thoughts of the authors into a fun game. Uh, over and over again, you see that, does it need to be this complex? I mean, encumbrance goes to three decimal places. You know, you I mean, it's trying to work out what you're wearing. As I say, you know, 50 types of armor on 30 hit locations. So each with three decimal places, you know, for weight, trying to work out what each of those do. do. And speaking of someone who really likes numbers, looking at my old character sheets, I got it all written out. I got it all there. And actually, once it's written down, and you know what you're doing, it's not too difficult. But once you start trying to check, you need a rubber and a pencil for this game. I mean, you really, you, there's a lot of rubbing out and putting things in. You know, the idea that the TLAs are incredibly off putting, and many of them, they don't need to be there. They are, again, it comes from the sort of war game thing where they want to be very specific. They don't want people getting, you know, arguing. They want to be specific um, in, the, in the area where you we're reading out of you know the the idea that you can't just say a critical success a die roll of one. Oh no because if your bcs is one or lower your basic chance of success if it's one or lower then in fact you don't get a critical roll of one as we can see from the completely off-putting flow chart which <laughs> is apps i mean it's flow charts like that that just make people look at it and turn it into a sort of laugh um you know ha 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 it's hilariously complex um there are better ways i think when in more modern games they're able to explain concepts that maybe just as imagine writing out a really complicated flow chart for certainly pathfinder combat i mean even 5e combat if you tried to make that into a flow chart with everything that could possibly go wrong with everything that could happen it would look ridiculous so the way they present the rules, I think, is untutored. It's, you know, it's a real example of early rules presentation. This isn't just a flowchart with a few branches to explain the flow of things. This is a proper John Seddon lean methodology with swim lanes and all sorts. It's a decision trees. and It's really interesting. And hey, if you're into computers, you know, this would let you create a computer program to run this and of course someone has if you go online the person who probably is most into aftermath at the moment has put all this onto a computer in the mid 80s um so that you know he could really just press a button and you know he could finish a you know two minute combat in 20 minutes as opposed to two hours which is what it would normally take and he he had a very successful time because it is it is really set up to be computerized it is you know you really can follow it and i reckon i'm not gonna but i reckon you could do this in basic you know i think if i had my spectrum and uh yeah again this isn't a spectrum podcast yeah, well, in, in Roll20, uh, I'm very fortunate that uh, Mark, who plays with us, he's very good at the macros, and he was able to build the macro for a rifle and get the results, uh, you know, with a flick of a switch, you know. So. Exactly, and um, I think if this... Had, I, I, and I don't know whether you... Uh, Robin Laws tried to kickstart a role-playing game where 
you had to play it with a with a tablet you know all the rules are pretty much on the tablet it was set up that you just you know when it came to deciding what happened there were a bunch of different things that could you know modify it and you press it you know you'd press a bunch of buttons and it would spit out the answer and it failed it's one of the very few kickstarters that very few things that robin laws has ever been involved in that that failed but i think he looked at this and thought people like complexity they like crunch but they also mm. like doing things quickly how can we put this together maybe we can do the computer to do the crunch so if you care you can see all the things that you know that make the difference but if you you know but you know most people don't care so if you've got people who like crunch and people who don't in the same game some people can spend their time looking at how the computer works and other people just accept it so it was a really you can see why robin law's giant brain thought this was a good idea but it just i think what happened was people who liked crunch said well i, I like my flowcharts thank you very much and people who don't like crunch said well i like just rolling 2d6 thanks very much and not, in fact it didn't work for either of them weirdly i still love the concept and and, and on that hit location point that you made um it does mention a d30 in it so it, to do a saving Ooh. throw you can use a d20 or a d30 however for the hit locations it's got a formula to calculate on a d100 of those 30 hit locations which one you hit yeah. fortunately, fortunately they put that into a table so you'd have to work out the um, formula but they give you the formula just in case you need it and, and of course it depends on your combat stance because there's you know as i imagine you're about to jump in and say different <laughs> combat stances have you presenting in different manners and more likely to be hit on the left or hit on the right or hit on the you know uh, uh, uh. I mean, it's again of course that's true if i am standing towards you with my right shoulder forward i'm much more likely to be hit on the right side any game that doesn't take that into account might as well just flick a coin um you can hear them saying but it's just that level of just at some point it's just too much and it um uh, you know i think i think for a lot of people this was just too much uh, there's too many things that you've got to do it takes too long to get an outcome that's interesting um and of course like any you know, anything involving genuine modern weapons that doesn't really make it up um they're really lethal and yeah. people just die um and of course people say well of course you do to avoid combat of course you do right but again combat's fun and exciting it's um you know it's it's the old runequest argument again it, it is good to have a game where combat is always a serious decision but really it's really it, it takes such a long time to roll up a new character which brings me to one of my favorite things about characters because this is Again, I know I've already said it, but I love the fact that you want to be 55 in this game. I love that. I love the fact that these whippersnappers, speaking as someone on the right side of 50, um, you know, there are a lot of details, which I would love to go through in detail. It's, uh, it, it just means you get, you've got more skill points, you've got better attributes, you've got better skills. It's just everything is better if you're older. And I think we can all appreciate that sometimes. Sometimes it doesn't feel that way. <laughs> yeah. I don't know, but but this game, you know, it is better. People in my scenario, they were all men of a certain age who were council workers under the bunker of uh, Sheffield Town Hall. They're all over fifty-five, so they're incredibly skilled. You know, who knew that the guy working in the works department was also a trained killer? The game assumes that this is taken. 20 years after the catastrophe doesn't it so even though there's some versatility in the setting it it does really want you to be at the point in which 
a new civilization is trying to form or, you know, there's some conflicts taking place. I did it straight at the point of um, the nuclear attack and some of the skills were a bit skew-whiff because they didn't fit that kind of setting. If you keep reading the rules, it does have the you know the first generation is the twenty years because they they I think they think the first generation growing up so you've got pre uh, disaster whatever that may be and people who've actually been brought up you know player characters who've never known anything else I think that's why they went for it um, you know if it's two hundred years afterwards no one remembers what it was like before it's more of a sort of gamma world sort of approach where it's all mystical. I, I see that point. I think it's an interesting point at which to set it. But there are ideas for how you can play later. Not earlier, though. Um, yeah. uh, I think going earlier was brave. Probably a mistake. And I think it's a, a point of, uh, it, you know, it's a career highlight in uh, podcasting that Michael Kuehl from Improvised Radio Theatre with Dice, at the end of it, said, you could have done this better in GURPS. Um, yeah. And what more can anyone ask? <laughs> I mean, it's... But, but I mean, there's lots of, you know, there's lots of fun things that you can look at, um, uh, you know, to enjoy while you are playing. I mean, it's even just reading it, you know, I, I was so, I, I, I was just having a lovely time. I was sitting there, you know, with my red wine. Uh, did you see the rules for stopping? The, oh, no, I haven't seen those. Oh, these are good. It's because we all know, because realistically, if you're running really fast, you can't just stop, right? That would be mad. No, so you've got very specific rules for stopping. You've got four different speed types you can have. You can it's perfectly possible to be running and try and stop and do something and just fall over. Like like all good heroes, like in you know, like in Mad Max where you know people just get falling over. You know, it's and, and you can think you think, yeah, that's sort of true, but really do I need that? Is that is that gonna tell something interesting? I think, and I think that's the key bit. It's you know, for some people, yeah, they want to be able to point at someone who tries running really, really fast towards you. They want someone to run at you, and then they can step out of the way and go, "Ah ha ha! Look, now you have to try and slow down and make a you know a, 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 a CST, um, <laughs> uh, or otherwise you're going to stumble and go forward." Because you know, it's that level of mastery, it's that ability to use the rules triumphantly that they love um and it is also it feels good doesn't it to you know the cons if you're reading a conan book sometimes conan steps out of the way and the guy goes running past that doesn't happen in dnd 5e unless you sort of add it to the narrative um uh, so again you can come up with amazing combats where you don't get shot in the neck well, well as you said all that uh, all that resource for calculating these things is available on the internet isn't it because it, it what surprised me is that it is still a living game it's still uh, some supplements that have come out relatively recently, 12 years ago, um, the survival guide and uh, other things have been produced for um, for Aftermath. So there's, there's a fans for it still out there. Yeah, and, and, it can't be just a no- nostalgia. But I don't think, I think once you've, it's got a really high entry cost, this game, understanding it, knowing how it works. But if you found a group of people who are prepared to put the effort in, you know, and you know they understood how it worked, and they didn't argue. You know, sit there desperately trying to work out, you know, what their wit was supposed to be used here, and how whether it's deafness. They knew all that, and that was all quick. Um, I think you could have really interesting. You know, I can imagine days where what did you do in today's campaign? Well, you know, uh, 
the truck, the carburetor went. So we had to go into the city and try and find a new carburetor um, because otherwise we weren't going to be able to haul the lumber in order to keep ourselves warm over the winter. So we had to go into the city to do this and we tried to avoid things, but we found a bunch of, you know, ghouls and we got into, you know, luckily managed to largely avoid them and ambush them. And it actually sounds very much like the, you know, the dungeon crawls from, you know, the, the early seventies where they were highly planned. They were very tactical. The idea was to avoid anything exciting happening. You know, you wanted to get it all planned out and reduce your risk because everything was so risky. You know, it's all about reducing your risk. It was all about having, you know, the surrounding world, your hirelings, your your NPCs around you. I think it's an attractive way to play. Um, it's just not one I find easy to... I mean, honestly, I, I probably wouldn't do it given a choice because I think I can, you know, hit... We've had 35 years to work out how to punch these buttons um uh, and get the same feeling of accomplishment and exciting things happening and story we, we've learned how to do it in easier ways um i think sometimes i mean listening to blithy and his new world if you're using more than one d6 it's a bit too complicated i think he's got i think the pendulum's going to swing back a bit with that i think uh i think that, that there's a sweet spot which you can probably guess the sort of game that sits right in that sweet spot for me. But um, <laughs> it's, you know, uh, Aftermath is right up here and I you can learn stuff from it. You can look at it. Um, you can admire it without having to say, this is a game I really want to actually play. Well, I think that's uh, a good endorsement of it. Uh, so thank you very much, uh, Doc Cowie. And well, uh, thank you so much. Us. Yeah, it's good to have you. It's been absolutely marvellous. Um, is there some sort of play-out music? Yeah, well, yeah, I'll press the button now. Hello, Grognards. I'm Griff. I've been gaming for 30-odd years now. I love role-playing games, but that wasn't always the case. There almost wasn't a first for me. I come from the black country in the post-industrial Midlands, an area so grim and dark that Tolkien used the elvish translation of black country, Mordor, in his children's books to describe his land of blight filled with barely comprehensible savages. Geek was not chic in the mid-80s, and standing out as different was asking to be dangled from the third-floor window of the chemistry lab by the school equivalent of orcs. You kept your head down. One person who definitely didn't keep his head down was Shervy. He strutted around the schoolyard dressed in odd-coloured neon socks and braces like his hero, 80s comic Bobby Ball, and he gathered social outcasts to play a game that he got for his birthday, Maelstrom. He explained Maelstrom was a book and a game, but without a board, with dice and you acted out Elizabethan characters carrying out missions it sounded a bit daft. Shervy was persistent on his magnificent seven style mission to gather players to the point that after months of resistant school he turned up at my mum's house on a Saturday morning with his geek posse and just stood there until I agreed to accompany him for the first Elizabethan mission. 
I lost that standoff. And how thankful I am to him that he persisted. An hour later, I was sat on a lawnmower in a freezing shed, rolling a character by pulling handwritten bits of paper from a sock. The Maelstrom book didn't come with dice, apparently, as he played mood-setting Chaz and Dave over a boombox. And then, the magic happened. That total immersed into a game world, an imaginative deep, deep, deep dive, both exhilarating and a bit frightening. I was no longer Griff. I was Montague Maccabee, a scholar charged with transporting secret messages from his patron to a contact. I was beset by bandits and rival spies. Combat was ruddy frightening, a level of lethalness that makes RuneQuest seem twee, with rules for broken bones, dying of internal bleeding or foul-smelling infections. That first 20 minutes of play changed my life. A year-long campaign came to an end when the group's priest got the group's mercenary pregnant. I always wondered why they seemed to sneak off to the bottom of the garden to discuss tactics. And even though none of them played Maelstrom, or indeed role-playing games again, I knew that I had discovered a hobby that allowed me to escape from my own world to somewhere else. My last is another game in which I had that incredible feeling of total immersion. Liminal by Paul Michener. In an original and amazing adventure written and run by Bud of Bud's RPG reviews. He has massive hands. Liminal is a brilliant urban fantasy style game along the lines of Rivers of London, Neverwhere and Hellboy. The game is elegant, with a light rule set that means you can concentrate on the playing, but with neat resolution systems when your actions are in doubt, to give a satisfying sense of gaming. I love my outing as Jim Chimney, the grazed and chaotic changeling. I could wax lyrical about the scenario. I don't want to spoil anything for anyone who has the joy of playing it in future but it really drew upon liminal strengths. It's a gloriously British game, and it was tremendous fun encountering the occult in really prosaic settings, places that I have visited and lived, and not realised the surreal, supernatural story lurking just below the surface. Liminal is based around the crew concept, that the players are odd allies with bonds and backstories, and are as interested in each other's stories as their own. That was a magnificent feeling. That belief and trust in the other players as you visualised and imagined walking the monster-infested streets of a city. It felt like we were co-authoring a premium graphic novel, or at least adding the finishing touches. Beautiful. A game I want to play again, and if possible, with the same people. I really hope many people play both the scenario and liminal. It's a fantastic game and just perfect for convention settings. My everything follows some of the themes from my first and last. Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay. I am currently running my home group through the revised and tidied Enemy Within campaign. I loved it and ran it when it first came out and if anything... I'm loving it more this time round. Material that good is wasted on teenagers. Like Maelstrom and Liminal, Warhammer is a very British game. 
Okay. It's set in a grim and perilous fantasy Europe, Germany in particular, but for me, the comedy, the quirkiness and the peril are pure jabberwocky. The fourth edition has its real critics, like Maelstrom, but you know what? I don't care. I'm not one for fair rules and balanced classes. I don't think the stories and worlds that I want to explore are particularly fair or balanced. They are grim and they are dark. Warhammer gives you all the tools to make life satisfyingly miserable for players. One of mine told me that he was having nightmares caused by encounters with mutants. For me, that's the ultimate compliment. Like my first and last, my everything generates camaraderie in buckets. The entire world and the ruinous powers are out to get you. So it's good to know that you can rely on Helmet the Ratcatcher and Helga the Witch Hunter to have your back. Over the years, a tremendous amount of lore and detail of the old world has been developed by the game designers, artists, model makers and novel writers. An entire continent to live and die hideously in for years and years and years. But like my first and my last, it's a really accessible setting and one that you can very easily step into from our own world and feel like you're really there. So, Maelstrom, Liminal and Warhammer. British perilous escapism. And if you are listening, Shervy, and I'm sure that you are, cheers, mate. You gave me a tremendous gift, the keys to escaping the schoolyard and finding a host of new comrades. Thank you, and rock on, Tommy. Grogglebox! Well, I'm beaming from the bunker in the room of role-playing rambling, and in their respective bunkers, I've got Eddie in his shed. Oh, it's rattling, but it's OK. And Blythe, who's the, uh, the bunker over in Little Wigan. Painted all the windows white, as instructed in the government handout. That yeah. partly will save me. You can't see out then, can you? But deflect the blast, won't it, obviously? All right. Uh, deflect the blast, yeah, white, whitewash. We're talking all about <laughs> nuclear anxiety and threads, and we've been watching threads, and we're going to talk about that. Yeah, you're right. It, there, there was all that talk, wasn't it, from that um, Protect and Survive mm. booklet of how to get your house ready. And I used to mither my dad about what we needed to do to prepare. Let's face it, we were never going to get the doors off in our house because they've been painted over the hinges that, that many times. times. We always wanted to, though, didn't we? We always wanted to make a den with some doors. There was no chance of it happening. You'd die before all that. Wouldn't you? <laughs> yeah, nuclear, nuclear bunkers are like underground. You you were under your stairs. It's a poor man's bunker, isn't it? The working class bunker. Or, or otherwise known as a dead man's bunker. Dead man's bunker, yeah. <laughs> I, I remember the uh, QED programme. I don't know if you remember that, which was like a documentary. That was almost like a um, consumer advice programme on how to build a bunker. Was that the one that told you about um, what the effects of a bomb would be at various points in ge- geographical points from the impact of the bomb? Was that that, was yes. that, that one? Yeah. yeah I remember watching that. And it, and it simulated the effects of the blast. The thing I remember was the glass explosion and it shredding a pumpkin. Wasn't it a one megaton bomb or something? Yeah. It was a one megaton bomb. And I think we, we kind of worked out that if they dropped it on Manchester, we would um, get really severe sunburn for about three seconds and then be absolutely obliterated <laughs> in a blast. 
Well, that's it. We knew it was like there was a moment where you thought, oh, sunburn. All right. So I'm <laughs> not going to be atomized. I'm getting a bad sunburn. And then, then it went on to say, and in three seconds time, this happens. And essentially everything's rubble. Oh, I see. Not so good now. Then, then discovering, I think, later on, the Russians had like 1,000 megaton bombs. This is based on a one megaton bomb, and they've got 1,000 megatons. <laughs> So really, no chance. And we're, what, 12 miles away? Yeah. yeah. Manchester City off. Centre, which which was, if you remember, I think it might, might still be, but do you remember? I always had posters up that it was a nuclear-free zone. Remember? Yes, yeah. A lot of cities did. Sheffield did, you know, where threads were set. It, was that it, meant it, to stop the Russians dropping Well, it, what it meant was that they would not allow nuclear weapons to pass through the city when they were transporting warheads or whatever. They wouldn't let them through the highways. Yeah. Was Bolton ever a nuclear free time? I think it, it, it took a long time to get uh, fair trade, didn't it? So I think they're still negotiating it. <laughs> but it was a real anxiety, wasn't it, at, at that time? I mean, I remember being obsessed with um, the threat of nuclear war. I, I just assumed that it, it wasn't a question of uh, if, it was when it was going to happen. When. Yeah. Yes, it did feel like that. It did, did didn't it? An imminency to it that it was going to happen sooner or later. Particularly, kind of the early, sort of early to mid mid eighties as well. I always think it was quite exciting as a teenager because you always kind of assume you'd survive a group of kind of animals that would be a bit left behind, you know, in the rubble and making a, a new world. You know, why, why would you try and train to be an accountant in nineteen eighty four when you thought, well, I'm going to be on a motorbike with a chainsaw riding. <laughs> In the, in the rubble of, of Bolton and Manchester, you know, I'm not going to... Why would I want did you, to did you express these views as a school careers officer? <laughs> I want to be a chainsaw warrior. So that's why you went for something more practical, like building studies when you left school. That's right. Because I knew there'd be a need. I've ended up in middle management. I've no discernible <laughs> skills whatsoever. So come the day, I can't offer anything. Unless it involves post-it notes and flip charts. Well, I think it depends who survives, though, doesn't it? I mean, if it's only middle managers who survive, you, you might be, you know, a king. You're assuming oh, you're assuming that the useful people will survive somewhere. Maybe they'll all die. In which case, it'll just be a bunch of middle managers having to rebuild civilization. Well, you just lie. Therefore, so it'll you... never be rebuilt. On the, basis of what, on the basis of what you just said, Eddie, are you disappointed that there wasn't a nuclear holocaust then? I think, yeah. We are building studies. Wasted. At, <laughs> at the time, at the time, we were part of the generation that would have survived it, wouldn't we? Now we're, we're now we're part of the generation that are going to be hiding under the doors with our earth falling out. Well, in my case, it's already gone, but we'd be the ones who'd be vomiting and <laughs> completely useless because our bodies are knackered. <laughs> but then, then we would have been what sixteen years old and perfect. The bomb would have gone. Brave off. new world, we staggering out of the rubble. Lived under the sewers of Bolton or something for 12 months or something, and come out and reclaim society. Brilliant. I wish you'd mentioned this at the time. It would have been reassuring, strangely reassured now. By that, what that's why threads, threads were so disappointing because it kind of, it's only the threads that <laughs> concentrates too much of the actual event, not the bloody aftermath, which is, which is found a brave new world. <laughs> <laughs> When, when I originally saw uh, Threads, I was disappointed that it didn't have more of the simulation stuff it like QED, because this is what the human skin would look like, like a blowtorch <laughs> over a, a piece of meat or something. I, I found it odd that you're both disappointed about these things. I was, I was, dis- <laughs> I was disappointed that it, it showed the absolute destruction of humanity in quite a graphic way, but maybe that's just me. 
<laughs> I, I'm the, I wanted the fantasy. I wanted the rubble afterwards. I wanted the biker gangs and the kind of. I didn't want to go to work. Basically, I think that was a nice alternative than going to work. Rebuilding like, society. Rebuilding a, society. With the, the yeah, was, I, I, I give you. I, I give you that when it when it was kind of the, the mid eighties in early to mid eighties in the northwest uh, with mass unemployment. There was a sense of well, if the bomb goes off. It'll be, it will be a great leveller, both literally and metaphorically, won't it? <laughs> that was, what, 84, was it? So, what, 20, 36 years ago, was it? So we'll be just coming out yeah. of the nuclear winter now, won't we? 2020, we'd be like, the green shoots would be coming out of the ground. Yeah, ironically, yeah, we'd be It'd able to socialise socialise again and go to the pub, and yeah. ironically, now we can't. <laughs> I was uh, obsessed with it, and I remember uh, saying to your granddad, because we used to meet, didn't we, before we went to school? It'd be breakfast television and astrology chat Yeah, he'd, he'd slag off Russell Grant, wouldn't he? Because he'd say he's robbing a living because he was yeah. just making all this astrology stuff up. And the, the news would come on, <laughs> and I'd start going, oh, God, this is terrible, because of the like, mounting pressure of uh, potential nuclear threat. And he went, what, what are you worried about? What are you worried about? I said, you know, this. And I said, look, CND rising on the street. He said, Oh, bugger off, we had this back in the 60s. Now it's happened since then. It's like dismissing my concern about it. I was struck by, it's a similar thing with the environment, isn't it, that kids now are more anxious about climate change and somehow our generation is kind of saying, oh, you know, these things take time time. and, you know, it'll all work itself out. Maybe we need a thread. We need a thread about global warming, you know, climate change, don't we, to bring it home. Because yeah. I think I think threads did have that impact on a lot of people, didn't it? It is it is an horrific film. It is terrific. I'd like to thank oh, yeah. you, Dirk. I'd like to thank you, Dirk, for making me watch it again. Thanks. Cheers. That was yeah. a great <laughs> night in. Because it is, it is, it is absolutely un, it's unrelenting. There's no joy. There's no joy. There is no joy. It is goes from bad to worse to worse to unimaginably bad and yeah. ends. Is, yeah. oh, all right, great. That, that is it. I might be wrong here, but there was another American film called The Day After, wasn't there? Yeah. And The Day After is is equally, it's not quite as gritty, but but I think that ends on an almost like a positive note, doesn't it, that society will be rebuilt, you know, something yeah. a bit yeah. like that. I might be wrong there, but, you know, because I don't want to watch that as well. Don't make me watch that. <laughs> yeah. but, you know, I have watched that. Steve, I have watched Steve Gutenberg, hasn't yeah. it? You know, yeah. losing his hair. And it's a bit, there's kind of a slightly positive thing at the end, isn't there? Whereas yeah. Threads, uh, uh, Threads is, is not like that at all. Typically no. British. Yeah. Mm. Well, I think there's a the degree of social realism in uh, Threads, because obviously it's got Barry Hines involved, who yes. worked with Ken Loach, a Kes in British uh, cinema. They're kind of revolutionised it, didn't they, they yeah. bring in that social realism. And that you do get that sense with uh, Threads. But I think, uh, talking, to go, come back to gaming, I think Threads was the kind of thing that put me off the kind of post-apocalyptic gaming. And I don't mean Gamma World. We've talked about that. I don't mean Gamma World. I mean things like Aftermath and The Morrow Project just didn't appeal because it just didn't seem like a palatable subject because it was an anxiety about that kind of thing. That, that uh, I, I remember thinking, I don't want to play like Aftermath. Remember when we were at Tom's and we rolled characters for Twilight 2000? And even that, I wasn't 100% keen on it because I thought, oh, I don't ever want to spend my evening pretending to live in a world that might be around the corner. Okay, so shall we have a look at uh, look at Threads then? 
So it's fair to say that it's uh, the way that it, it, it works, it works in um, three acts, doesn't it? it it's mm. kind of got the setup, which is the social realism bit. It's got the middle bit, which is all about the uh, bomb dropping and the response to the bomb dropping. And then the third act is quite unusual when we um, reach that. We can, we can talk about it. What I find interesting is the guy who directed this, Mick Jackson, was actually the guy who directed the QED documentary that we talked about. Yeah, he used some of the offcuts from that documentary to build this up because he was interested in like wrapping a drama around it to show what would happen. So. Would you call this a drama documentary these days? Because they had bits of yeah. footage then, didn't they? Do you know what he went on to direct? He went to Hollywood. And oh. it, the film he's famous for is The Bodyguard with Whitney Houston. So he went mm-hmm. from threads to doing uh, the bodyguard. Body. Yeah. Equally disturbing films. It starts in uh, Sheffield and we're brought into the lives, aren't we, of uh, Reese Dinsdale and Karen uh, Mager. They're kind of having a relationship. It's soon established that they're going to have a baby. And you get this kind of social drama because she's from a middle class family lower middle class family and he's from a working class family isn't it so there's kind of that interaction and uh, I like them bits they're they're more more interesting because it gives you a snapshot of 80s life didn't it television in the corner yeah yeah it's done very much like it is like soap opera isn't it it's like a domestic soap opera the build-up is happening in the background isn't it on radios and tvs and in newspapers so it's done very well in that way of it doesn't kind of have everybody glued to the TV watching. There was a scene in there where they're decorating and they're decorating and she cries or something. Yeah. Scraping the walls. Yeah, the scraping the walls. There's, there's those kind of domestic scenes and yet this nightmare is kind of building in the background, isn't it? Yeah. About the, you know, the, the Middle East and the Russians and the Americans. It, it kind of replicates, exact, I think this is kind of what makes it disturbing because it replicates that sense that, there was at the time that there was all this stuff going on in the news whilst everyone was getting on with their daily life. Yeah. And it does, re- it reproduces that very convincingly. I think. It is good how they show the different families, don't they? So they're setting it up that one's a working class family, one's a middle class family, because it becomes relevant when the bomb drops because one of them has a cellar you know, a mm-hmm. built-in bunker, yeah. and the other one has like a makeshift doors and uh, mattresses. Sandbags, bin bags or something, wouldn't it? Yeah. Bin bags and mattresses. The council workers have a proper bunker, don't they? Yeah. <laughs> well, that's where, that's where I located the game uh, for Aftermath, in the bunker. Because I did find that interesting, because I, I remember when I watched this, as I said, I wasn't really caught up with the drama of it. I wanted to get to, th- I want to see the bomb drop and all the devastation. Mm. Yeah. But, now watching it in my middle age, it, it was very striking. There's that bit where the chief exec is preparing uh, for his instructions from the home office and his, uh, his wife's like packing his bags with a toothbrush. And, uh, uh-huh. She says, are you going to be long? And he says, oh, it's only like when I went to that training course. It plays on the irony of the fact that nobody feels like it's ever going to happen. And they use a lot of lines like, well, it's not the end of the world, is it? Even they're surprised, aren't they? The actual council, are they actually in the bunker when it dropped? Well, of course they are, aren't they? They're almost completely unprepared. Yeah. They've been stockpiling and getting blankets, sending blankets to schools for some reason. Don't quite know why they're doing that. 
I was just saying maybe they're thinking along the terms of the Second World War, where they think these schools will become hospitals. Yeah. There'll be no schools yeah. left. They're just flattened, aren't they? No. You know, non, 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 none of it works. Yeah, you're just, you're just screwed. Council workers in the bunker. Yeah, they live a bit longer, but they don't, they don't, do they? They're all dead by the end of it. That's, you know, there's no hope. And But at the time, there was that sense of it's kind of comfort. Yeah, like it's like the protect and survive and plans and contingency planning and all this kind of thing was to kind of reassure people that no no we can get through it you know because threads threads exposes and it exposes it through presenting it with facts so it's not like i think it's very careful to not just present it as a horrific drama i think by presenting all those facts on the screen you know about typhoid dysentery powers out this is out that stops it makes you think oh yeah actually no there's there's no way out of that if that happens there's absolutely no way out of it yeah, you know, it does a good does a good job of that. I think not just the the horror of burnt people and destruction, that blasting you with facts, you know, that yeah. tells you, yeah. well, this is why this is happening. And as that as that contingency planning starts to kick in, and prior to the bombs going off, and you can feel the growing tension, I quite like how Threads deals with the civil unrest as well, and mm. this idea that people were migrating to the country and that actually you'd be stopped and you know, stay in your own home and, yes. you know, keep everybody yeah. buckled down. Because I suppose we got a, a sense with the present unpleasantness of how people respond to yes. um, instructions, don't they? Some people feel, you know, that the restrictions are in, in position. They play that out really well, I think. It, this is the 80s. There's also a comment from the TUC. Prior to the bomb, we're going to call for a general strike. <laughs> the labour yeah. marches and the union protests. Yeah. yeah. Can't, can't win. What would a general strike do? <laughs> and uh, it, that guy was challenged. And he said, I'm a patriot. I've been trying to get us out of the common market for years. Perfect. That, that really does give it a sense of perspective in history. It's a historical piece. <laughs> I, I, I quite like the scene as well, where in the town hall, they focus on the Lowry picture. Lowry is like a northern working class painter depicting urban scenes of crowds. They kind of they start putting them away, don't they? Not to do anything more time, don't they? Yeah, protecting them. Yeah. The moment that it happens, the line is, "They've done it." Yeah. You see that you see the bomb drop. Yeah, the mushroom cloud. Yeah, and this to me, this this moment is what makes threads because. This is the bit that is so terrifying, isn't it? Seeing people running through the streets. And even though they do that, the use of uh, noise and then silence is great as well. And the use of the information. <laughs> telling you the facts. There's that, there's, that, there's that bit in the, the woman who wets herself. Yeah. That always sticks in my mind as kind of just weird or disturbing. I don't know why, but just... The blind terror. For me, that scene takes it away from like a Hollywood panic scene. That scene where the woman wets herself kind of brings home the genuine terror of it for some reason because it's kind of unpleasant. Yes, slightly uncomfortable. Like you shouldn't, you shouldn't see it. Like you shouldn't see that. So as it as it shows this uh, explosion, they use that. Um, you know, we've been saying, haven't we, about that effect? You know, they used it a lot on in uh, the eighties, where they kind of d- turned the image into a negative. Yeah, there's the, there's the bit where the bomb goes off, and then there's there's like, a, but then there's this bit. There's a bit where the woman comes comes out looking for the boy, doesn't she? Yes, and she screams, and you get that. And it goes negative, doesn't it? And white, 
which I presume is the heat. That's of, a suntan. That's a suntan. Yeah, that's just your mild suntan, yeah. yeah. Fries people. And then after that, you've got all the, the, the charred bodies and is it Ruth, isn't it, the character walking through the rubble, isn't it, and all the, yeah. the people, which is just, oh, God, that's grim. I mean, that is grim, isn't it, that bit? The woman with the baby, you know, the woman with the dead yeah. baby. Yeah. Oh, look at the camera. Oh, my God. That, that, in some ways, that, that's kind of the worst bit of it, I think. Is that not a couple of weeks after the bomb's gone off? Because it's been a stellar with her parents since she at first. Yeah, yeah she, she, walked through, she walks through the, the rubble, doesn't she? And, and it, it, there's a point where... There's, yeah, there's like a, it's not. It's not the kind of later years later, but it's relatively recent after the bomb. Yeah. she walks through yeah. the rubble, and there's there's people, isn't there? Like charred bodies and and That's people just sitting rats. there with yeah, all that. Kind That's of thing, eating people. Yeah. yeah, which is is just <laughs> That's just grim and awful, bit really that. <laughs> so this this I think as I think that's the cause I think that's awful because that's the bit where it gets across to you and and it did get this across when we were kids I think watching it the sense of hopelessness you know up to that point you've had the bomb you've had the explosion you've had all that and mm. and that bit afterwards you, that's when it it gives you that message that there is nothing left there is no hope now that's happened this is what's left. Yeah. And from that point on, it, it spirals into more, <laughs> more, <laughs> more misery, really. Yeah. 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 And it's this section, I, I think, is uh, fascinating. So this bit where the, the, the council contingency workers are trying to get things under control, yeah. you know, the, having to introduce rationing for the food supplies. Because that, that's the bit when we talk about gaming. Post-apocalyptic games don't really deal with. And that's why I wanted to focus the game on this bit. Because they tend to concern themselves with 20 20 years on or uh, much later when you know when people are running around with chainsaws on motorbikes on motorbikes yeah yeah (laughs) but in terms of drama this is this is the interesting bit isn't it just that's a critical moment isn't it that is the time that you think it's do or die isn't it you can yeah have you got enough enough pot noodles in that cellar If not, yeah. you're going to die. Well, I think I, I think what that what that bit in the bunker does is it reinforces it. It kind of plays a bit of a, it's not so much a trick, but dramatically it plays a bit of a trick on you because what it does is you've got all the all the misery up, up on upstairs, you know, in the in the world outside the bunker, um, and then you've got these people who are still wearing their shirts and ties and aren't burnt yeah. and, are, and are trying to organise things. So it, it presents you briefly with a sense of possible hope, and then very very quickly that unravels as well, you know, yeah. and they're arguing and you realise they can't actually do anything. There's nothing they can really do. And that's a kind of, it, it just plays a bit of a trick on you, I think, by cutting, to, cutting to people who are not not dead or burnt, but yeah. they, there's nothing they can the, do. It tells you the trap, doesn't it? And you, yes. kind of, you think, yeah. <laughs> no better than anybody else. No, no, just a matter of time. Them. No. <laughs> yeah. No, yeah. no, it's just a matter of time before they're, they're the dead one as well, small portaloo. There's about yeah. what ten of them in there, ten yeah. blokes and a yeah. woman with one portaloo, yeah. which will be backed up in about two days. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and and those poor souls end up being buried alive, don't they? Me- yeah. Meanwhile, people are, are fighting over prawn cocktail crisps. Best quarter of the film, that, isn't it? 
Yeah. That soldier says, "What flavour?" Prawn cocktail. Yeah. Oh, I'm gonna eat prawn cocktail. Oh, after shooting, well, I like prawn cocktail. I'd fight over prawn cocktail now. You know, I can't stand prawn cocktail, so I'd be, I'd be that soldier. That's me. I like, uh, prawn cocktails are food of the gods. I like prawn cocktail crisps. Yeah, I do. I'm a yeah. big fan of them. Yeah. So, so me and Blythe will be having a shoot. We'll be all right. Yeah. We'll yeah unless you have to fight each other over, yeah. you know, to the death <laughs> for a pack of a pack of prawn cocktail crisps. The part where there's like looting and introducing mm. um, some semblance of law and order to and some justice, dealing with people who are breaking the laws. In, in a lawless place, the, the pecking order starts to establish itself, yeah. doesn't it? Yeah, it goes straight to the military, doesn't it? Because everybody else is just clusters of thieves and looters, aren't they? If you're hunting for food in a house, you're a thief. You know, where are you going to go for a packet of crisps or a tin of beans? <laughs> You, know, you can't pay anybody for it, can you? So you might as well break into a place and then you get shot. So what are you supposed to do? That's how lawless it becomes, isn't it? And so we see um, it's Ruth, isn't it? Ruth, um, it becomes, starts to become her story, doesn't it? Um, they, they eat a sheep, don't they? Raw. That's trash. She bumps into, what's his name, doesn't she? The, the mate of Rich Dinsdale. The mate, yeah. bump into him and he, yeah, yeah you're raw sheep. <laughs> It doesn't actually show what happens to Reese Dinsdale, does it? He no. disappears from the. He goes, yeah. he's run, he gets in a car. This is when the bomb goes off, doesn't it? It doesn't work, and then he runs off. And that's the last you see of him. Always but I think shame. that's again. I think that's a deliberate, a deliberate thing, isn't it? Because it it does a sh- it does a shift of portraying this kind of social realism soap opera world with all these characters that it develops and then the bomb goes off and some of those people are just gone they're just gone because they're dead that's it it's not like yeah. everyone's got a story because they're all dead mm. and i think that is sort of a deliberate thing I, I got the feeling that was deliberate that he's he's a central character and then suddenly he's not a central character maybe the first time you watch it you're thinking he'll, he'll emerge at some point because i think in a traditional if it was like a traditional perhaps slightly hopeful drama, he would emerge out of the rub. Yeah, he would emerge, wouldn't he? Yeah. And embrace Ruth and, oh, he's alive after all. But he's not alive. You're never going to see him again. He's been burnt to a crisp or atomised and that's the end of him. Yeah. And that, I think that's a deliberate thing. of Because it's, like, it's like the boy, isn't it? The young boy who dies in the, the pigeon, the, the bird place, yeah. isn't it? He, he, awesome. he, the, you kind of, I, I think it plays around with your expectations of what those kind of films might how, be like. How can you kill a child in this thing? Well, they do because yeah. children are going to die. Because that's what would happen. And it yeah. drifts It drifts into, um, not so much science fiction, but it drifts into, like you say, kind of like the like survivors. It drifts into this post-apocalyptic world, doesn't it? It yeah. becomes slightly strange. But those people that were in the other world are gone. I think his father survives, doesn't he, a little while, and then succumbs mm. to radiation poisoning, doesn't he? Dies. Yeah. Yeah, a bottle of whiskey yeah. or something. Yeah, his wife yeah. dies, and his wife is actually um, Jean from Early Doors. Don't know if you watch Early Doors. Keep expecting to get her asthma inhaler out. But if, if you know Early Doors, you'll know, you know what that is. Yeah, and, and so Ruth gives uh, birth to uh, a child, doesn't she? And mm. um, and then it starts about the nuclear winter. Uh, survival of the fittest at this point, where you know people uh, it moves on to like twenty years later, and this is this this is a great science fiction moment because you've got kind of a breakdown of language, haven't you? So, yes, are, yeah, a bit, a bit of uh, Ridley Walker with it, 
Gizit. Gizit, yeah. 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 And uh, the kids watching the TV programme. Yeah, the skeleton thing, you know, it's just kind of weird. Yeah, watching yeah. The, yeah, the kids' TV programme. Education, yeah, but schools programme, weren't it? Yeah. yeah. It was, uh, yeah, that's strange, the croaky video recorder. Be kind of weird as well because it's skeletons, you know, like a world of death and they're learning about yeah. skeletons. It's kind of yeah. like really odd. Yeah, dystopian science fiction, really, by the end of it. But it, yeah. but I think it gets it gets away with it. I think it gets away with it. I think other, if handled differently, it might seem silly at the end. But I think it takes you on that journey, doesn't it? And does a convincing job of going from something that feels like a soap opera to something that feels like dystopian science fiction. Yeah. There's only one, one of the scenes that really irritates me, though, is that it's right at the end. Where, I know what uh, you're going to say. I know what you're going to say. Go on, I noticed it. this when I watched it the first time. It's when Me she did It's got fillings. fillings. Yeah. Yeah, she's got fillings. <laughs> and she, she was born after the, uh, the apocalypse, wasn't she? Yeah. So, I, I, th- that was I the moment then, that killed I do. I do. It killed it then. Yeah. <laughs> yeah she screams giving, giving birth, the, the daughter of uh, Ruth. Yeah. Um, and uh, she gives it, and she's got fillings. You, you think, oh no, no, I'm not having it. it, it no. Everything that went we, before. I bet we talked about that at the time because it's been '84, so we yeah. knew each other back then, didn't we? So we would have said that bloody fillings at the end. And there's a scene a bit earlier than that, but it's a while after the apocalypse, and she's walking around with a very clean plastic bag, a gateway bag. <laughs> so what it is? It's very clean and very wide. Ah. So where's she got that from? Yeah. Well, this is found a stock of them somewhere. Yeah. When they said it was a when they said it was a bag for life, they meant it. <laughs> I'd never quite like warm to that roof in it. And one of the scenes that bugged me is that when she's in the cellar with her mum and dad and her grandmother, and she's guzzling all the water, isn't she? Drinking, and they say it all go easy. And I think hero of the pro, heroine of the program, rather. She's guzzling all the water while her grandmother's got the shits or something. You can't, I couldn't warm to her after that. Mind you. Uh, Whilst she may be selfish, she does she does pay a hefty price later on the film. <laughs> yeah, I suppose. By yeah. surviving the bomb. Meanwhile, her dad's trying to suck water off that piece of wood or something. That's, or a, a yeah, she, she, the, the real pun, the punishment was she survived and had to, to live under those conditions. Yeah. Well, it's a lose lose situation in that. Isn't it? Yeah. You, you better have just kind well, of. I always remember you know, one thing. One, I have a vivid memory, and Dirk may be able to confirm this, but I remember our chemistry teacher, Mister Grant. Used to used to talk to us and say, as a class, this was his advice in the case of a nuclear attack: was just walk into the street and die because that's the best option. I just remember him saying that. Yeah, yeah. I think he was probably right, but I always remember watching this, watching threads, and then thinking about the chemistry teacher's advice. And thinking, oh, yeah, he was probably right there, isn't he? Because. They don't, the survivors do not have a good time of it, do they, really? 16-year-olds, like I said before, we're going to be the generation that is on the motorbike for chainsaws. <laughs> With a clean plastic bag. <laughs> not, not the for not the old couple under the doors with their earth falling out to puke it up, which is what we're going to be now. So the last thing you want is a nuclear holocaust now. <laughs> Why or why couldn't they have had a nuclear holocaust when we're in the prime of our lives? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> typical, isn't it? Yeah, typical, right. you know. Don't you say what? Be have a look, have one next week. Yeah, two yeah. come along at once. Well, I hope that's uh, cheers you up, gents. Cheers to end. Yeah. Best watching drunk, and it is. If you've lived there, and I think it, it's it's a nostalgia thing, isn't it? Rather than 
even though it isn't a nostalgia, because it could happen now. Watching it does take you back. It's a good mm. film. It's, I it think, is, I think film. it is. That's true, actually. Although I thought it is a fantastic film. It is really good. It's a really good film. You know, you, you kind of forget that in a way because it's famed for having a political impact, but it is actually a very, very good film. Very well put together and well done, probably on a low budget as well. Is it the best apocalyptic film of the 80s? <laughs> <laughs> so, 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 no, no, that, that, that surely is Conan the Barbarian, isn't it? <laughs> or have I misunderstood? <laughs> no, the best... The best of the comic. You know, <laughs> no, the best is obviously Mad Max Road Warrior, isn't it? <laughs> is that the first one, second one, third one, yeah. or what? Yeah, the second one, isn't it? We should have watched yeah. that. We should have watched that. Yeah, because that, that, that probably does have someone on the motorbike with a chainsaw, doesn't it? That would have yeah. chained oh, us no. up, wouldn't it? No end. It's yeah. got a great one dog those, in it as well. Got a great dog well, the dog in it. it. One of those rare films where the sequel is better than the original. Yeah. What you need is a, a, a good dog in it with a, a neck chief and What have you got in this film? A writhing cat. Yeah, there's a writhing cat. That's disturbing, isn't it? I think there's a charred dog as well. Writhing cat and a charred dog. Yeah. Why couldn't they it's have British. a bloke in a leather biker jacket? Yeah. British. They don't do hope, do they, the British? It's got to be grim. Look at Kez. To be, to be fair, I think people who made Mad Max 2 and the people who made Threads had different agendas. <laughs> <laughs> do you reckon? Nice no, hope. Thank, thanks, both of you. And see you again soon. Okay. Cheers. See you. All right, I admit it. Turning to threads for RPG inspiration may not be the best idea that I've ever had. Ed mentioned The Night of the Comet, and that may not be the best post-apocalyptic film of the 1980s, but it's certainly the best film featuring valley girls versus space zombies. Maybe that's my next project. I wish I'd gone for the Mad Max movies now for Grogglebox as the three of us piled into the cinema to see the Thunderdrome when it came out. Sorry if the threads bit made you a bit miserable but worrying about total annihilation was a big part of my teenage years and I just had to share it. Thanks to Doc Cowie for helping me discover what's interesting about Aftermath. Too often we can dismiss complexity in the pursuit of elegance and simplicity but there's some good ideas buried in that gobbledygook. Thanks to the Doc, I was able to see them. Thanks too to Doc RPG Griff for his amazing first, last and everything. Thanks for bringing up Cannon and Ball. Did you know that the Blackpool season in 1985 outsold the Born in the USA tour by Bruce Springsteen in the UK? Oh, oh, you've got my skin. I'm loading up the scenario notes for the Threads Aftermath game along with handouts and pregens into the Grog Locker, our online space for resources available to patrons. As well as running the game for Grimcon, I also played with the patrons pulled from the hat for the monthly one-shot club. If you want to have your name in the hat to play, then throw some coins in the beret over at the Patreon. You can find out about all of our projects and our monthly webzine shared to patrons it's also where you'll keep up to date with the developments of the online convention Grogmeet-ish, taking place between the 12th and 15th of November 2020. We're extremely grateful to everyone who keeps listening to these bobbins and to those who've put their commitment in the form of financial support, particularly in these trying times. Thank you very much. I'll be giving some individual shout-outs 
next time. And talking of next time, we'll be looking at Dungeons and Dragons. You may have heard of it. Not advanced, not 5e, but basic D&D. Holmes, Moldvay or Mensa. We try and understand its enduring appeal and why it continues to be remade again and again. And we'll be listening to some of Lou's views. I'm nearly at the end and I'm pleased with myself as we've gone the whole episode about Aftermath without making some cheap gag about Hit Location 12. You know, such as make sure you're wearing cast iron wife fronts. Oh, bollocks. Until next time, adios, amigos. The air attack warning sounds like this is the sound. Take cover.